righteous, but sinners to repentance. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, what a word that Jesus spake that day to the scribes and to the Pharisees, murmuring at the kind of company with which Jesus was eating and drinking. An astounding answer and astounding wisdom and an answer that could not be gainsaid but had to be agreed to, namely, they that are whole, the healthy, need not a physician, but they that are sick. And with that word, Jesus vindicated His disciples who had been asked this question by the scribes and Pharisees, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Jesus, coming to the aid and assistance of His disciples, He not only clears them of fault in the matter, but he also issues an indictment against the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. The setting here of this text, as we read, Jesus had just called Levi Matthew. Two names for the same person, Levi or Matthew. And he was not the kind of man that you would have expected to be called by the Lord to follow him. From the perspective of the Jews in the land, this would be the last person you would expect a rabbi Uh, to call to follow him, a tax collector, a publican, one of the most hated persons in the land of Judea. And yet that's the one that Jesus called. An example of what we read in 1 Corinthians 1 of how God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise and how God chooses the weak things of the world to to confound uh, uh, the strength, uh, the things that are mighty. Well, Levi, with love and gratitude in his heart for so merciful a Lord who condescended even to call him, throws a party, you might say, has a great feast, and the publicans and sinners who have heard of this Jesus who rather than give a stiff arm to publicans, uh, actually eats and drinks with publicans, gather around the table, which draws the ire of the proud scribes and the self-righteous Pharisees who ask the question that they ask. Well, Jesus' answer is a gospel principle. Them that are whole need not a physician, but them that are sick. That That is a gospel principle that is worthy of our consideration this evening and is quite fitting in connection with preparatory with a view to the Lord's Supper next Sunday. And so we consider Luke 5, verses 31 and 32 under the theme of physician for the sick. Noticing in the first place for what kind of people. Noticing in the second place Jesus coming with purpose. And noticing in the third place regarding the Lord's Supper, which is to say uh, bringing these things into application with respect to our celebration of the Lord's Supper next Sunday. Well, let's return to the setting, and let's get a a clear understanding of that setting and of the parties, the persons who were present when Jesus gave this word. While there are scribes 
and there are Pharisees, and there are publicans. And you couldn't draw a greater contrast in Judea than the contrast between a Pharisee and a publican. Beginning with the publicans, who were they? Well, these were Jews who were employed by the Romans in the service of collecting taxes. And these were the ones that would have toll booths scattered throughout the land and you passing by with your camel and your bags with goods in them. Uh, You would have to give an account of your possessions. You'd have to pay duty and tax on the goods that, uh, that you had. And those taxes were farmed and and they were brought ultimately to Caesar. And so these publicans, they they are called sinners in the text. Verse 30, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? In the eyes of the Jews, and especially in the eyes of the Pharisees, you might say these publicans were big sinners. They were notorious They had a bad reputation in the land of Judea. These were the kinds of people, these publicans, that Jews walking by would shoot them a look, sneer at them, uh, maybe speak a biting word. Uh, uh, The Jews were repulsed at publicans. Why? Well, for one, they were working for the Romans, which was anathema to the Jews as a people. There was something traitorous about these publicans that they would even stoop so low as to work for the hated Gentile world power that currently had Israel under its thumb. In the second place, work as a publican involved associating with the unclean in the eyes of the Jews. I mean, these publicans, they were bumping into all kinds of people in their work of uh, collecting taxes. And their occupation invariably uh, caught them up with uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness, uh, uncleanness as it was defined by the Jews of that day. And in the third place, these publicans were no strangers to and in fact notorious for extortion. The way they made money is by charging a little bit, supposed to be a little bit extra, on top of the taxes that they had to bring to Caesar. Well, you can imagine that these publicans were no strangers to extorting from those people, taxing way too much to line their own pockets and to enrich themselves at the expense of the sheep that they were fleecing. Contrast. Publicans now with the scribes and with the Pharisees. Who were they? Well, the scribes were a group of people in that day that made it their business to study the law. That made it their business to study and explain the Word of God in great and fine detail. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone in the land who knew the Bible more than the scribe. The Pharisees, their very name means the separated ones, and they were the ones 
in their own eyes, they were a, a separate category of people. They were the separated ones in distinction and in contrast to the, the people of the land, the, the common folk, the unlearned, the uneducated. And in their own eyes and in the eyes of the general public, these Pharisees were the most devout ones, the most pious ones in their business of being practitioners of the law point for point as no one else in the land did. From an external perspective and in their own eyes, they were, they were the law keepers in the land of Judea. And so again, the contrast between uh, these notorious sinners that are publicans and these pious and holy in their own eyes, scribes and Pharisees. Well, Jesus, he's eating with publicans. He's having dinner with these publicans and sinners. And that draws the question from the scribes and Pharisees to the disciples, why is your master eating with these kinds of people? You could just hear the derision in their voice, why eat with your master with publicans and sinners? That was very countercultural. They, they want a ground. They want, they want the disciples to give an account of their master. But understand that that question was not an innocent question. That question was laced. That question was designed to implicate Jesus, to put Jesus in the wrong, and to shake the confidence of the disciples in their master who was hanging out with such kind of people as this. And that had some force. You can imagine the disciples, they were at a loss, and Jesus has to come and step in and explain things, and he does. He says, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now that's a... That's so straightforward, is it not? That's so simple. People that are healthy don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. And there is a, that, that's a, an analogy there, that's a metaphor for a, the spiritual reality that people that are not sinners don't need a Savior. People that are uh, righteous in themselves do not need a Savior Jesus came into this world for sinners. Jesus did not come into this, into this world for people who have what it takes and are righteous in themselves. Now that was an indictment against the scribes and against the, against the Pharisees. Jesus, as it were, in that word that at the same time explains his activity, he's doing his job, exactly what he came into this world to do. In that answer, he, he presses charges against the scribes and the Pharisees. And the charge, the indictment is this, that these scribes and Pharisees uh, thought to themselves that they were whole, that they were righteous in themselves, by their own law-keeping and by their own obedience for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We learn from not only this passage, but other passages in the New Testament 
that by the time Jesus ministered upon this earth, that this spirit, this attitude had become entrenched in the scribes and the Pharisees. The attitude of, and the spirit of pride and of self-righteousness. And Jesus confronted that again and again in his ministry. These Pharisees thought that they could, that, that, that they could inherit eternal life by how well and how hard they kept God's law. They thought they were in by reason of their doing and their obedience. And out of that, out of that root of pride and self-righteousness arises the bitter fruit of despising of others, looking down at these publicans and sinners as though the Pharisees uh, did not belong to that category. We find that very clearly in Luke 18, verses 9 and following. The well-known parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And the first one who steps up is the Pharisee, and he steps up first for a reason. Marched into the temple, marched into church boldly with his chest puffed out and his nose in the air. And his prayer, he gives thanks to God. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, unjust, extortioners, adulterers, or even as this publican that he's seeing out of the corner of his eye. That's the attitude. The Pharisees not only stood on their works for acceptance with God, but they despised others and looked down at others. As the text in Luke 5 points out, the Pharisees were those that thought themselves to be whole and healthy and thought to themselves that they stand in no need of Jesus the Savior. When it comes to repentance, Luke 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For the Pharisees, it was like, what need of repentance? The Gentiles, they're the ones that need to repent. These publicans, these sinners over here, they're the ones that need to repent. They felt no need for repentance themselves because they found, they thought themselves whole and healthy and righteous. But they deceived themselves. As Jesus pointed out so, uh, so sharply in his denunciations, the Pharisees who made clean the outside of the cup, but inside was so much evil and so much iniquity. Ah, those Pharisees. Ah, those Pharisees. Really. Are we immune from that very same spirit and attitude? We are, we are so sinful by nature that we, will, that we are by nature prone to put on Phariseeism against the Pharisees. As one Reformed theologian of old said, we are not immune from a prayer like this. God, I thank Thee that I'm not as other men are. Proud of my righteousness. Uncharitable towards publicans. Or even as this Pharisee over here. 
No, there, there, is, there is, it is inherent in us. It is, it is in our sinful nature, this self-righteousness and this pride and this legalism and this Phariseeism that we see displayed in the Pharisees. And what are some ways that that expresses itself? Well, self-righteousness, self-trust for our righteousness. If we should suppose to ourselves that something we do or our obedience or our works contributes to our admission into heaven. As though somewhere in that purchase price, somewhere in that title and that right and that ticket to heaven is something we do or some work that we perform. For example, if we should think or suppose along these lines, I, I, I pray every day, I go to church regularly, I do not drink too much, I have never committed public gross sin, well, for that reason, then I must be uh, admitted into heaven, as though our works contributed to that title to eternal life. Another way that it expresses itself is uh, to suppose that by our obedience we have uh, placed ourselves out of the category of sinner. To suppose that by our good works and pious practices, we are no longer sinners and stand in less need of the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins. Or stand in less need of repentance. One of the ways that this spirit of self-righteousness and pride and Phariseeism expresses itself is in despising of others. That is the invariable accompaniment of a Pharisaical spirit, the despising of others. It is the bitter fruit of pride, the bitter fruit of self-righteousness, whereby we look down at others, including our fellow Christians, and suppose ourselves to occupy a higher rung on the ladder, either because of what we have done or because of what we have not done that this other guy did. Oh, this one, this one did that. I, did, I, I never did that. I'll never do that. Or think about it in terms of, in these terms. Suppose there is a member, a member of the church, who for some time had lived a notorious life, big, ugly sin. And, that, that, and, and, and suppose now that that member had been restored by God's grace, repented, and, and, and led a, a changed life. But now suppose that that same member, restored, penitent, member of the church, should receive the stink eye by us. If every time that member should walk by us, we should look down at that member, continuing to judge that member for the life or the sin that he or she had committed. Supposing ourselves to belong to the class of the pious ones, while such an one as this, they are the real sinners. As though this member forever walked around with a scarlet A stitched upon the clothes, or a big letter S for sinner. 
whereas our clothes are clean. Well, if our sins, if our sins were brought to light before the whole church, there would not be enough room on our clothing for all the letters that would need to be stitched onto those clothes. They that are whole, Jesus says, need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It ought not to come as any surprise, scribes and Pharisees, that Jesus is here eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. That's exactly why he came into this world, to save sinners. It ought not to surprise us that Jesus has something to do with people who've really bigly sinned and done, and done bad things. Are we not such ourselves? Or are you whole? Are you healthy in and of yourself? Are you, are you righteous and good enough in yourself for eternal life. You see, if you are not a sinner, then you do not need Jesus. Sinners need Jesus. Not people who can get to heaven by their own works or by their own obedience. Them that are sick need a doctor. Let's consider that now. The, the, uh, the sick, the sinners. What's the idea there? Well, what does sickness mean? Sickness implies that we're not the way we're supposed to be. It means something's wrong with us. Sickness implies that there is some standard of health and us being measured against that standard, we are found wanting. We are out of line. We are crooked. We are perverse. We don't line up with the way we ought to be. You think about when someone who is sick goes to the, goes to the hospital and, and is uh, a battery of tests is performed upon that person. And the results are compared against the, the standard, the normal, and the diagnosis is sick. The doctor says we found something abnormal on the scan. Something that in a healthy person you wouldn't find there. Well, that term sick is used metaphorically to describe sinners to describe the abnormality and the disease of sin in contrast to righteousness and perfect uprightness, which is how God created us. In and of ourselves, we are sick. Badly sick. We've been taught the Heidelberg Catechism our whole life. Guilty. Corrupt prone by nature to hate God and to hate my neighbor, deserving of God's wrath and deserving of, uh, of God's punishment because of our transgressions. With us, by nature, something is very wrong. That's the point. We were created good. We were created the way we are supposed to be. When God made us in Adam, a man perfect, upright, not a trace of sin to be found in him, a righteous man, and that's how we were created in Adam. Uh, Inclined towards God in heart, mind, will, affections, feelings, emotions, conformed to God's law 
and, and able to keep God's law perfectly. And now I go back to that illustration of the, of the hospital and of the test. Here we are. We're on the bed now. We're, we're, we're the ones that are going to go through this MRI. Spiritually speaking now. We're, on, we're in the exam room. And the doctor's over here and he, he takes off the chart and on that chart is the patient history. And he looks at that patient history and it says, originally created good and righteous and holy without spot, without blemish, without the least trace of iniquity. That's the patient history. A human being, originally created good. And as we, as we pass through that MRI and as we are subjected to the examination, the doctor, that with holding that chart with that patient history, looks at the results, and it's all wrong. This human being originally created good, but what does the doctor find? He's a sinner. That result shows that, that there is this foul evil so deep within him that he hates. He's prone by nature to hate God. And to hate his neighbor. He thinks evil thoughts and he wills evil, evil, evil desires. He speaks cutting and biting words to his neighbor, even against his own spouse and his own children. He doesn't serve the Lord the way that he ought to serve the Lord. He serves himself. He manufactures idols. He's running after this, that, and everything else except God by nature. The medical assistant, looking at the, at the results, says, all I see is sin. Where's the righteousness? Where's the, where's the original goodness? And says to the doctor, doctor, the case is very grave with this one. But the good news, the good news, faithful and true and worthy of all acceptation, to use the words of the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 1, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The physician came for the sick and the diseased and the guilty and the corrupt and those who couldn't save themselves and those who can never keep God's law the way it ought to be kept. Jesus came into this world to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That coming there in verse 32, Jesus says, I came. And when you read that word in the New Testament, the coming of Jesus, marvelous, great, big reality. I came. Well, who is the I who came? This I is the only begotten Son of God. He's the Son of Man, the Messiah. He is the great physician. He is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings who came to save his people from their sins. This Messiah, this only begotten, he came. He came down from heaven. He became man. He became incarnate, united to himself, the human nature. God in the flesh, born of a woman. The miracle of the incarnation. This one 
uh, his coming. As we said in the creed, he suffered. He suffered all his life long, but especially at the end of his life. And at last, he offered himself to God in the flesh, a sacrifice for our sins and for our salvation. An atoning death underneath the wrath of God, and God raised him from the dead, Jesus Christ having finished the work that the Father gave him to do. Now that coming, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That means he came for sinners, as the apostle said. And we, we, we are tempted, we easily lose sight of this basic gospel principle that Jesus came for sinners. And that he died, was crucified, buried, dead, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven for sinners. Lost and ruined by the fall. To use the words of a minister of old, this minister speaks of, and now I quote, the religion of 99 English people out of every hundred who know nothing of divine grace. And this is their understanding of things. We are to be as good as we can. We are to go to church and do all that we can. And then Jesus Christ died for us and we shall be saved. Whereas the gospel is that he did not do anything at all for people who can rely on themselves, but gave himself for lost and ruined ones. That's in our nature too, this, this mentality that we must better ourselves before we become uh, eligible uh, for salvation. Reform ourselves and thus become candidates for the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's all backwards. Jesus did not come uh, for, for the righteous, for them who can save themselves. Look at the examples in Holy Scripture. Pretend like we're reading this history for the first time. And, and what do we find in Holy Scripture? We find that Jesus came into this world to save a Rahab. A Canaanite prostitute. We learn that Jesus came into this world to, see, to save people like Manasseh who caused children to pass through the fire. We learn in the Bible that Jesus came into this world to save the likes of Saul of Tarsus who murdered Christians. Consider ourselves are we any better by nature? And yet for you who believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus came for you to save your poor, wretched, sinful selves and give you the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of His righteousness and because of His death. Now to point these things out, to point out the kind of people whom Jesus came into this world to save is not to encourage sin. 
but it is to encourage sinners. And to point these things out is not to encourage sinners in their sin, but it is to encourage sinners in the great physician, Jesus Christ. Sinners who struggle to believe the mercy of God and and who, who struggle by reason of unbelief to believe that this Jesus could save such an one as I am who have done such things. But what say the Scriptures? Whosoever believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And this reality we find described in Luke 5, verses 31 and 32. And none that trust in Him shall be desolate. Jesus does not stiff arm. He does not exclude anyone who comes unto Him and trusts in Him. All that the Father hath given to me shall come unto me, and Him that cometh unto me, no matter how big a sinner He is, I will in no wise cast out. And there is healing in His wings. With His stripes we are healed. He is sufficient. He is enough. All them that trust in Him find in Him all things necessary for their salvation. Now let's consider verse 32 now with regard to the purpose of Jesus' coming. He came with purpose. He came uh, for the salvation of His sinful people. And the fruit and the effect of His saving work is the repentance of sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, what is repentance? We're not going to have an exhaustive treatment of that term there. Very, very big term in the Holy Scripture in the New Testament. And the first thing that John the Baptist says is repent. And when Jesus comes, Jesus says the same thing. He says, repent. Well, what is repentance? Literally, that word there means a change of mind. And that is a, that is a God-wrought, that is a Spirit-produced change of mind. Well, what does that change of mind look like? What's the change? Well, the effect of God's grace in giving repentance is that we, and this is very simple, right? This idea, very simple, is that we acknowledge our sin and our sinfulness and our sickness and our not healthiness and the fact that we don't belong to the category of righteous in ourselves, able to save ourselves, but that we are by nature lost and ruined who can do no thing to, uh, to save ourselves. Repentance such that instead of hearing in the Bible about sinners, in repentance we, we, we come to see, I am the man. That what God's law is pronouncing here against sinners, God's law pronounces against me, I am the man. In repentance, it's not arguing with what God says in His law when He says you are guilty when he says you cannot do what it takes, but it is agreement with God in what he pronounces. It is siding with God against ourselves in our, in our sins and sinfulness. The Catechism describing repentance in Lord's Day 33 speaks of uh, the sorrow of heart 
the Godward sorrow of heart. That sorrow there is not a sorrow that I've been caught. It is the kind of sorrow in which even if there were no consequences, suppose, you'd still be sorry because you sinned against God. And that's offensive to God. This good and loving God who has revealed Himself to us by His Word. Repentance implies a siding against sin. By nature, we take the side of the flesh. We take the side of sin. But in repentance, God radically changes us in our minds, in our heart, in our will, in our affections, so that we, we side against sin. And we hate that sin. Again, not mainly because of the consequences, but we hate sin as sin because of what sin is to God. And positively, uh, as we see in Lord's Day 33, the, the putting on, the quickening of the new man, and we see it in Zacchaeus too, repentant Zacchaeus, resolved to be done with that sin and to walk in the ways of the Lord. Well, as we said, this repentance is a, it is a gift. It is God-wrought. It is Spirit-produced. And that's the plain teaching of Scripture in Acts 5, verse 31, when it speaks of Jesus who is exalted to give repentance. We find it in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, where the apostle um, gives us instructions how to labor with those who are caught in the snare of the devil. If peradventure God may give them repentance out of the snare of the devil, it is God's gift that he accomplishes by his word and spirit. And that's taught as well in verse 32, I came not, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. And in the divine calling, God gives and confers faith and repentance upon his people. It is the effect, it is the fruit of divine calling. The command of God issued by the word externally God commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that was all the calling is, was a word that bounced off our ears, it would never go any farther than our eardrums. But in the divine calling, the Spirit who operates through the calling, He effects and produces faith and repent, faith in Christ and repentance towards God. Notice then that Jesus did not come to call sinners, that they might continue in sin. Notice that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He calls people into a whole new way of life that that springs from repentance, that deep-seated repentance. Now, understanding that, that Jesus has not come to call sinners such that they might continue in sin, but to call sinners to repentance. Understanding that, again, don't misunderstand the text, and notice that it does not say, Jesus does not say, I came uh, to call repentant people. We don't want to misunderstand the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is not come you who have sufficiently repented and have now made yourselves eligible to believe in Jesus Christ. If that were the call of the gospel, we're done. The call of the gospel is come 
ye sinners, and believe in Jesus Christ, and I will heal you. For whosoever believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And that calling by the gospel and the power of the gospel, Romans 1, it is a power of God. Jesus' calling is effectual. It does things. It accomplishes things. It evokes the very faith and repentance by the Spirit who operates thereby through that word. When it comes to repentance, another important aspect to consider here is that repentance is the fruit of faith that He works in our hearts. And now that's not just theological, this is not, what do you want to say, abstract stuff that doesn't have anything to do with uh, very practical realities. When we say repentance is the fruit of faith, what's the significance of that? It means that repentance is not atoning for sin. We might say, of course not. But I tell you, within us, by nature, that's there. We want to turn repentance into penance. If only I can be sorry enough for my sin. If only I can feel enough regret for it. If only I can beat myself up enough for sin. That will pacify God. Then God will forgive me. Then I may be assured of His favor. If only I can be sorry enough. And when we take repentance, which is this blessed fruit, and we, and we turn it into essentially a Catholic penance. But as someone once said to me, he never read in the Bible that his repentance died on the cross. So repentance is not an atonement for sin. Neither does repentance dispose God to have mercy to us. As though God is not willing to forgive us until we have sufficiently repented. Which turns repentance into a climbing back into God's graces. Which again has it all backwards. Repentance arises out of faith. Who repents to God? Who bears his soul before the living God and pleads guilty before God? This holy and just God who hates sin and punishes iniquity. Who repents? Who does not believe that this God will be merciful even to him? As John Calvin said, the beginning of repentance is a sense of God's mercy. Who repents before God who is not persuaded in his heart of the promise of God's Word that He is plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon Him. Who repents before God who does not believe and is is convicted of with respect to Himself personally what God says in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's not our repenting makes him faithful and just to forgive. It's he is to all them that confess and believing in that promise and banking on that promise by faith. We repent before God. And we don't hide the sin from him. And we quit pretending that it's not as bad as it is. God's promised mercy opens up and frees us to repent without fear. 
Look at it this way. What Repentance is a turning, right? Turning from sin to God. Who turns to God except by the way, which is Jesus Christ? Regarding the Lord's Supper, a few points of application with respect to the Lord's Supper. In the first place, what is the Lord's Supper? Very briefly, now in connection with the text, the Lord's Supper is where the great physician communicates to us the fruits of his labors and his merits. It is the, a means whereby Jesus Christ, who is ascended into heaven, the Savior physician, communicates to us and shares with us the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Why do we need the Lord's Supper? Well, for one, by reason of the weakness of our faith, the promise by the Word ought to be enough for us uh, to, to purge away unbelief and distrusting Jesus condescends unto us, gives us these tangible things so that, as it were, we eat forgiveness with our mouth and, and, and enjoy the fruits of Jesus' death in a tangible way. Well, who is the Lord's Supper for? Lord's Day 30. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For them that are sorry to God for their sins. For them that trust in Jesus Christ that these sins are forgiven them for Jesus' sake. And for them that want more faith and more holiness. Who earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? Well, for whom is it not instituted? And it's not instituted for them that are whole. It's not instituted for them that are righteous in themselves and don't have any sin. What need for the Lord's Supper if, there's, if, if a man is not a sinner? What need for the forgiveness of sins if a man doesn't have any sins? But for anyone who thinks that way, hear the Word of God in 1 John 1 that says if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. Neither is the Lord's Supper for them that do not repent, but instead continue impenitently in sin. Question and answer 81. Hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. God is not mocked. Well, for whom is it? Sick people, sinners, who acknowledge their sin and acknowledge their sickness, trust in Jesus Christ and seek their salvation in Him. It is for believers who are confessing themselves to be beggars and poor, who have not what it takes and do not have in themselves what they need, expect their salvation and expect and look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, in this regard, Lord's Day 31, or Lord's Day 30, the, for whom was the Lord's Supper instituted, sorrow, sorrow 
to God for sin, trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, and the desire to uh, have more faith and to the more lead a new and holy life. Luke 5, verses 31 and 32 is instructive in dispelling from our hearts and minds erroneous thinking by which we, did, we dissuade ourselves from coming to the Lord's Supper. So the Reformed Fathers, in instituting what we call preparatory services, the purpose of that service was not only to warn those who ought not to come not to come, but also to encourage those who should come and yet are tempted not to come. And in the connection with the latter, we want to correct some common but erroneous thinking. Thinking along these lines, having heard the form, having heard Lord's Day 30, if we should say to ourselves, but my faith is not strong enough, I should not come. Or my repentance is not sufficient. I need to be more sorry for my sins before I can come. I need to be more displeased with myself. I need to be more purposed in my heart to walk in the ways of the Lord. We want that, but we're ashamed at how small. You see, what's happening there is you are feeling those infirmities and miseries that the, that the Lord's Supper form is talking about. And now let's evaluate those thoughts. Ought we to believe more strongly? Yes. Ought we to be more sorry for sin? Honestly, what is sin? We shake our fist against the living God and is our sorrow that small? Yes, we ought to be more sorry for our sins. Ought our lives to be more holy? Yes. The problem is when we argue from our infirmities and our miseries against coming to the table on the ground of a lack of qualification. Look at it this way. Would you be perfect before you come to the Lord's Supper? And would you have that all fixed before you come to the Lord's Supper? Would you have your faith to be perfect and your sorrow for sin to be as deep as it ought to be and for you to be repentant as repentant as, as you ought to be? Would you have all of those problems fixed before you come? Not only would you never come, you wouldn't need to come if you had it all fixed. Them that are whole need not a physician, but them that are sick. Look at those things. Look at those infirmities and those miseries. Uh, look at the, the, the weakness of our faith and the shallowness of our sorrow as infirmities. And repent over that. The fact that our sorrow is so small and the fact that our faith is so weak. Look at, them, look at it that way. As belonging to your sickness and as belonging to your sinfulness and confessing it before God in sorrow for our lack of sorrow. Come to the Lord's table as poor, empty beggars looking to be filled. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we give Thee thanks for Thy Word, blessed unto our hearts, and cause Thy Word to go forth with us in the week to come. Forgive our sins and keep sin far from us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.